20th Century Geek is part of Britpod Scene, a network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. <clears throat> Hi guys and welcome to another episode of 20th Century Geek. Uh, hopefully after last week you enjoyed the interview with Dave Moody. It was a cracker, I really enjoyed the interview. He's a really nice guy, I've uh, been in contact with him since and we've done the competition. Uh, we've had the winner, it's been announced on Twitter uh, and hopefully that's been sent out now. So congrats uh, to Brendan who won that. Hopefully we'll be receiving that signed Dave Moody book soon. Today we've got another giveaway uh, following the interview later. So today I'm interviewing Pete McLean, author of the Drake series of books, uh, starting with Drake and followed by, let me just check, Dominion. Uh, I've read Dominion, uh, I've bought a copy of Drake uh, and I will get into it, but I have to say it was a cracking book, really enjoyed it and uh, we'll get into it in the interview but following the interview there will be a competition question to win a copy a signed copy of the first book from the series Drake so I'll tell you right now if you like uh, Constantine or uh, the Dresden Files Jim Butcher's Dresden Files or anything like that along those lines you will really really like the Drake series um, there's a darker element to it it's, it's a bit more Constantine than, than Dresden but they're really really good uh, really good, really uh, recommend them but they do fit into this element of horror that uh, I think is worth talking about we talked into, you know, uh, with Dave Moody the other week about everything from zombies and the apocalypse and some of the uh, original literature and authors and writers that have sprinkled throughout uh, the 20th century uh, and, and contributed great deals and obviously last week I also focused on the legacy of uh, the great icon H. Excuse me, the great icon H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I've been reading quite a lot of his work actually as well, which is great. And the more and more I read, the more and more I see his uh, legacy being played out in so many other authors. But the one thing that H.P. Lovecraft really does um, hone in on is the unseen horror. Uh, the horror underneath the surface. So many, so many times, the characters are just sort of like regular people um, who are exposed or thrown into a horrific event, or you know, um, gain sight of some horrific monster in in some of the most normal circumstances. Um, and and that's the key to a lot of this. And uh, you know, especially with things like again going to Drake and the Dresden Files and those sorts of things, it's the horror that exists just under that surface of normality, and I think that's where we really find terror. As a pop culture, I think it's it's prevalent throughout. I mean, you know, there's great fantasy horror and there's masses of sort of like really extravagant horror. Uh, you know, um, I mean, <laughs> Freddy Krueger. You know, uh, Jason Voorhees, those sorts of things, those horror, that that sort of like jump scare, kind of slasher horror 
Um, it's very blatant. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I'm a massive fan, especially of Freddy Krueger uh, and the first couple of Halloween films. But all of it is very in your face. It's all about the horror. It's all about the the, uh, the slasher um, killer, and the, you're more about the kills than the victims, really, uh, as the series go on. And then the same about the zombies. Zombies can be, you know, yes, they are used as a satire uh, in a number of cases. But they are still very much the horror. The horror is physical. It's it's that sort of, my, you know, my God, look at this person's rotting fla- face trying to eat me kind of deal. And, you know, it goes on and on about these sort of, like, you know, in-your-face horrors, which I'm not going to deny I do love. They're great. But there's something that really, really works for me in sort of, like, urban fantasy and urban horror. And this idea of something horrific and terrifying living existing for hundreds of years or whatever just underneath the surface um you know you can look at all kinds of great examples of this from all over pop culture from the poppiest of pop cultures for example buffy the vampire slayer taking the idea as joss whedon did of the blonde um victim you know, cheerleader victim, that's usually the usual case, and turning her her into the warrior heroine. But the exact the fact that these vampires, and I'm not talking crappy Twilight sparkly vampires, I'm talking proper vampires, that they exist unseen, unknown, you know, as society. You go to bed at night, you know, you took your kids in, you go to bed, you flick off your light, you think you're safe. But just outside that window is a craggly-faced vampire willing to, you know, wanting to get in and suck your blood. That thing of not knowing what's in the dark, what's out there, really, I find fascinating in horror. Uh, Buffy's a great example. I think there's more, though. You know, the, the X-Files tapped on this quite a lot, that sort of thing. of What exists in small-town America was their thing, um, whether it be the twisted, incestuous families of like home, you know, or uh, the biological entities that existed in episodes like uh, Ice or Firewalker... Um, but the good one, the really good one, is Eugene Toomes. Um, Eugene Toomes existing solely to eat every 30 years, coming out to take a bite. Uh, same with it. Pennywise the clown or the the uh, the demon that exists inside Derry, coming out every 30 years uh, to take a bite out of the populace. Those things that exist under the normalcy. Uh, of humanity and the suburban is is what I really like and, and Lovecraft really tapped into that um, it's I don't repeat myself really but it's it's more a case of when you add in people like John Constantine and it's not so what's the word I'm looking for cataclysmic it's not the end of the world all the time it's just you know something small one person in danger um, because something is stalking them something you know that we do not see they're the real. That's the real scares for me. I think that's fantastic. So, I've been rambling just to fill some time. I would have done a. I was intending to do a a one man uh, overview thing again. I was thinking of John Constantine. Uh, time got away from me, unfortunately. And uh, but we still have the interview. A great interview. So, to stop me from rambling, um, we will hand over to the interview. But if, uh, this is a big chance, really, because we're going to be doing more horror this year, uh, later in the year. Um, for September I'm going to be doing a couple of horror films I've mentioned them before uh, Mike is going to be joining me again to talk about the films American Warfare in London 
uh, and Return of the Living Dead. Two crackers. Um, so please, if you've got any favourite horrors, any horror literature, really horror books, I mean, I really, you know, want to hammer home. This has been like literature month. This has been all about the books. Um, and so if you've got a favourite book, so you know, ones that really make you, make you scared, um, whether you when you were a kid or when you're now, just, you know, get in contact, let me know, tweet about it. Uh, find me on uh, Twitter at 20th Century Geek. Uh, email me at tw- or 20th Century Geek at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, I want to know what books make you scared. A lot of people talk about the usual Stephen King, James Herbert, Clive Barker, uh, Dean Koontz has come up a few times, good ones. Um, but what are the unusual ones? Uh, Peter Straub's Ghost Story, that's a cracker, that's a really good one. I uh, highly recommend that. Anyway, I will bring this to a close. Um, so I'm now going to hand you over to me. Uh, talking to Peter McLean uh, about many things, including how he became a writer. So I'll catch up with you guys later. Um, okay, so we'll get stuck in because obviously it's a, it's a Thursday evening, so I don't want to waste up too, too much of your time. So let's start with the obvious question, but let's start with your your origin. How how did you become a writer? Oh boy, um, it's, it's one of those things I've kind of always done, I think. I've been writing bits and pieces since I was in high school, but I think I was probably around 40 by the time I started actually really taking it seriously. Um, I wrote, wrote a couple of books, had a bit of agent interest, and it never really went anywhere. Um, I came up with Drake, and I actually entered that in the Angry Robot open submissions period. Angry Robot is in uh, to the publisher then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So they they normally only take agencies' submissions, but every sort of eighteen months to two years they'll do a a short open submissions window where anybody can send them finished work. Yeah. Uh, that was. Oh, I'm trying to think. Well, yeah, that must have been the 2014 window, I think. Hmm. And yeah, yeah, they um they like Drake and signed me for the first book. So that eventually came out uh, January 16. It was a very long process, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it came out at the start of last year. Um, the second book, Dominion, came out November last year, and Damnation just dropped at the start of May this year. So, you, so yeah, so it was sort of a you took you chanced your arm, and it's it definitely worked out for you then. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they had the year I was in Open Door. I think there was 600. And, 80 or something people going through it and as far as I know I was the only one they signed so wow Excellent. it's kind of kind of wing of a prayer odds but you know it, it can be done I know a couple of other writers that got published through publisher open door submissions as well yeah well, it's one of those things like the lottery isn't it? you've got to be in it to win it so if you don't try Abs- you don't absolutely absolutely I mean I've got a, a literary agent now but I mean if, yeah. if you're submitting to agents I don't know that your odds are a lot better to be honest yes yeah agents get an enormous number of, of submissions from authors all around the world and you know, there's, a, there's only so many hours in the day only so many clients they can take on and books they think they can sell well that's it yeah because like I say the market's only so big isn't it absolutely so you, you sort of so you say you know you came into Drake or you came up with Drake relatively recently but what what were you writing then before what sort of has it always been this in the horror thriller kind of area or is it, is it always mostly been... I started out writing sort of science fiction, sort of, I mean, when I was kind of 15, 16 years old, is 
very thinly disguised Star Wars fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, none of that still survives because I, I doubt it was very, um, <laughs> very readable in all honesty. But writing is one of those things that you have to learn by doing. I yes. Think. The more the more words you write, the more readable it will eventually get. So while you're you're learning the trade, um, it almost doesn't matter what you write. You just write whatever you fancy. I mean, I've written horror, I've written urban fantasy, swords and horses fantasy, bad science fiction. It's really, <laughs> science fiction is really not my thing, but I'll say it's what I started with. Um, I did used to write a lot of horror stuff in the in the 90s. That's mainly what I was reading at the time, I guess. So you, you get a lot of bleed over from what you're reading into what you're writing. Yeah, those are the influences. What kind of horror... So what was your horror influences in the 90s? Oh, well, it probably started before that. I mean, I was reading horror when I was early in high school. Yeah. I started out... Um, you know, the, the good old 80s British horror classics, you know, James Herbert, Sean Hudson, Guy Smith, all that. Yes. Mutant giant thing eats people. And yeah. <laughs> gets chased by the hero who's having sex with the heroine by about page 100, and at the end they kill nearly all of them until they come back in the sequel. <laughs> I, have, I have to admit, because I've been talking to quite a few people about, like... Um, their sort of, you know, their origin story, as it were, sort of whether it be for comics or film or for horror. And whenever I speak to like the British, um, you know, the Brit- the British guys or the British people, there always seems to be a theme. There's like James Herbert comes up a lot. Uh, 2000 AD. Uh, yeah, so I was a big 2000 AD fan. I used to love that. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I just spoke to uh, uh, John Tomlinson recently, who created oh, Armored Gideon yeah. in the 90s and. It's like a, it's almost like a, it's like a gateway drug, isn't it? Really for British for British fans. Oh, I think so. I mean, 2008, you, you sort of think of Judge Dredd and Stromsky Dog and that, but that, no, there was some dark stuff in that. Oh yeah. My, my favourite was Nemesis the Warlock. I mean, that was just so nuts. Yeah, the um, proper twist is. Oh it, well, you say it, it was just it was a masterclass in getting shit past the censors. Yes. Uh, I, I've read interviews with Kevin O'Neill, who obviously. Very famously, he did all the art for that and a lot of ABC warriors. And he was he was complaining in the interview about the amount of stuff he used to get made to white out. And I just think I want to see the original drawings, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if this is the stuff you weren't allowed to print, <laughs> uh, you really absolutely very. You see, there was a lot of Geiger influence in Kevin O'Neill's art. I think a very very bioorganic, horrible, crawling things sort of look to everything in Terminus. That really appealed to me. It still does. Love his stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 yeah. Kevin O'Neill's one of those artists. I think his his artwork ages really well because it's so stylistic. Yeah. It ages really well. Oh, absolutely. I think. I mean, some of the other stuff I used to love in two thousand AD with um oh the Bill Savage series mm. invasion. And I mean that was great in the late seventies because it was set in the far future of nineteen ninety nine, and obviously <laughs> that doesn't age well, does it? And um, Robo Hunter as well is. I think that was supposed to be said about nowish, and it yeah, doesn't work, does it? But no, it was it, so out there. It was like, such yeah, and that's it. I think that's one. Of the, it's one of the reasons I started doing this podcast was just to go go back and find out about like you know why did people start getting into these things and what things have uh, inspired things. So let's say James Herbert, your two thousand eight D's. Anything else then really that stands out to you as your influences? Oh, early Stephen King as well. Yes, definitely. So I mean, I, I think the first King I read was Christine, I think, and um, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Carrie. I mean, I, I went 
shelves of this stuff back mm. in the day. Unfortunately, most of it's gone in various house moves, but uh, I had all the James Herberts at one point, up, up till about 1995, had everything he'd written. <laughs> Nearly all of Stephen King. I was like, I used to love Guy Smith's Crabs books as well. Terrible though they were. <laughs> they were hugely entertaining at the time. I have to admit, I think I've only read uh, one Guy Smith book. Is it with The Sucking Pit? Yeah. One of his first ones. They're very pulpy. They are. I mean, he used to write one a fortnight at one point. Yeah. <laughs> he thought it was a wealth farmer who just did it in the evenings for fun yeah. and got them published. You know, and one's probably enough because they are all largely the same. But they're great fun. Yeah. And I used to like Sean Hudson's stuff because I was a big metalhead back in the day. And he, he used to be um, best mates with Tommy Vance who did the Friday Rock Show on Radio 1. Oh, wow. There, there was a lot of sort of heavy metal imagery and stuff in Sean Hudson's books. Yes. Tremendous fun. Very much of their time. So, yeah, I, I kind of cut my teeth on that sort of stuff. But um, I was always into CD crime as well. Mm. So, I remember there used to be a TV show called Callum with Edward Woodward. Yes, absolutely. Late, yeah, yeah. late 60s, 70s, before he did The Equaliser. Um, there's there's a lot of Callan influences in my books. It's, it was one of those things I just thought was so absolutely perfect because he wasn't James Bond, you know, he wasn't a millionaire playboy. He was this grossy little man <laughs> whose job was to shoot people for the government unofficially and I just thought he was so cool. That There is a fair bit of Callan in Don Drake, it must be said. Well, there's something else I, sort of, I really like about... Um... You know, we'll get, we'll get, one of the things I was going to go on to later on, but the comparisons between like Don Drake and other sort of like you know of, of that ilk, um, and I think like you know John Constantine or um, the Dresden Files, those sorts of things. Whenever they get the American influence, they 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 can't help but be the hero. Yeah, absolutely. And it's absolutely. all you know. They say, oh no, they're an anti-hero. They're an anti-hero. And you're like, well, no, they're not really. Um, and I'm not going to spoil anything because I'm, I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way through Dominion at the moment. But I'm learning that Drake has got, you know, he he's not um, shy, <laughs> let's say, about no. being the villain at times. Absolutely. I mean, Don Drake is a hard, a very selfish man. He's not a he's not a villain, but he's as he'll be the first one to tell you, he's no one's idea of a white knight either. No, yeah, um, and I, I really like that. There's. Whenever the, the British side of things, there's a, a much deeper cynicism, which I always find more honest. <clears throat> I, think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's a kind of cultural difference in a way between the British outlook and the American outlook, I think. As, as you say, even Harry Dresden, for all his many and varied faults, always saves the day, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, John Constantine, I'm an absolute door hell blazer. Lived on that in the 90s. Constantine doesn't, and... You know, sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses, and most of the time his best friends end up dead in the gutter while he saunters off having a smoke. Yeah. So, oh well, you know, move on. I see you live and learn kind of thing. and Exactly. It, it feels more <laughs> like a lived experience to me, that, that sort of thing, rather than the, the white hat hero. Yeah. The day. Yeah, and that's what I find that more interesting. So, I mean, so where did so Drake's, that, that's the Drake influence. What else is your... So Drake came to you. How, where did that influence come from? Or that inspiration? Where did it? Oh, it's, it's a weird story actually. Um, I'm on a forum called Absolute Right, which mm-hmm. is one of the most useful internet resources for writers of any genre, to be honest. But 
there was a, a general sort of throwaway chat thread on there, in, or it must have been late 2014, I think, where we were just playing a game. Write the, first, write the best first line you can of a book you haven't written. <laughs> and I came up with what is still the opening line of Drake. And I thought, you know, lots of people said it was great. And I thought, you know what, I really like that. That needs a story. And I wrote a short story off the back of it that got published in a small anthology. And again, I sort of I read that and I thought, yeah, I like that. I really like the characters. I had Wormwood in it and I had Drake in it. Um, but it was before Trixie arrived. And I thought, well, there's so much more to do with this character that I can turn this into a book. And I did. And mm. that's, where, that's where it came from. It really was as organic as that. And, you know, six months later, I had a novel. And I thought, yeah, okay, Angry Robot, I've got an open door coming up. I'll throw it at him and see if it sticks. And it did. So it's very fortuitous then. And it sort of, the inspiration came at the right time. And then the, the, the open door came as well. Absolutely. A, a lot of getting published is... I hesitate to say luck. I mean, you have to have written a good book. Yeah. But assuming everybody else who's seriously trying to get published has also written a good book, there's a lot of things that have to align at the right time that you can't necessarily influence. It's, it's getting in front of the right editor on the right day when he happens to be looking for that sort of thing and hasn't just signed something else similar. And yeah. There's was 101 alignments in the stars that have to have to line up to make it happen. It's very... Uh, unpredictable business to be honest but there are stalwarts and that's the thing there are things that are always um, you know like you say it's an unpredictable business and whether it be oh these or, in my opinion awful like the, the romance horror books or you know teen romance kind of things and they're, they're very sort of you know hopefully their time has gone and then you get other types of books that come and go but this kind of sort of like urban um, what I would say is urban fantasy horror has stuck around for quite a while. It's always been, a, it's got a good fan base. Yeah, yeah, no, it has. It's one of those enduring things. I don't, I don't know if it's because it's never been overly saturated. Mm. Like, I mean, everybody got a bit sick of vampires after the Twilight Grace. Yeah. Or just now beginning to be acceptable again. But you've, you've, I mean, you've always had sort of stuff on TV from... I'm trying to think of a really early example, but I mean, you look at something like Buffy. I mean, although it was light-hearted, that effectively was urban fantasy. Yeah, uh, you know, they spat Angel off of that, which was a bit more darker and grown up. And then you got Supernatural, and then you got True Blood, which is full-on blood and guts and shagging kind of stuff. And mm. it, it's always there in different iterations, but you you don't tend to get this single thing that deluges the market until everybody's sick of the sight of it, like you do with some other things. But I think part of it is because, there's, like you said, there's so many iterations of it. There's so many variances. And it's all because, to me, like all of these is all about, you know, there's the mundane, the, you know, the mundanity of regular life. There's the, the regular nine to five. And then there's these people like Don Drake or, or, you know, like you said, Buffy or whoever. And you just scratch below the surface and all of a sudden there's demons and monsters and all kinds of weird shit going on. Absolutely. I think that's a big part of the appeal. I think you've hit on it there with the mundanity. It's relatable. Yeah. And, you know, we, most of us have lived somewhere where there's that one weird house in the neighbourhood. You know, the curtains are always shut or the car never moves or whatever. The one thing where you think, there's something not quite right about that guy. Yeah. And it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to start thinking of things that it might be. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I think that's part of it. If you just extrapolate, just exaggerate that little bit, 
and suddenly you you can find yourself with some guy who's got a giant demon living in his basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's it. I think that's it. It's, it's a simple starting point. You can let your imagination go like crazy, and you know who knows. Like you say, who knows behind what goes on behind closed doors? Absolutely, um, Absolutely. that's a big part of it. I mean, for me, that the one that the, my entry point to a lot of this actually was uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Oh, that yes, that really is good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I mean, um, the TV series is dated. <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks like old Doctor Who, doesn't it? But yeah, the book, book is fantastic. Absolutely. <clears throat> but the yeah, the book's amazing. I'm, I'm, it's one of those ones I go back to. Um, but I love that idea that just beneath the surface is something, anything. You know, um, and this so, it opens the door up to so many different things. Yeah, so, yeah, that's quite agree. Yeah, London Below was a wonderful creation. That it's just that little fall through the cracks away, and who knows where you'd find yourself. Very, very well done. So for Drake, then, you know, you, you're three books in. And it's Drake, Dominion, and what's the third one? Damnation is the third one, which has just come out. Which just came out in May. So really, I mean, what's what could be the future then for for Drake? Well, there, um, I'm certainly planning at least one, if not two, more Drake books. Yeah. Um, don't have anything official to announce on that yet, but they are in the works. Um, if you get as far as finishing Damnation, you'll find out why we need to have another Drake book. Oh, way. I will be there. You about I, that? I've got to go back and get Drake, but I will. I will uh, get there. I would hate anybody to think Damnation is going to be the last one because it isn't. Um, after, well, before we do anything with that, I'm actually working on a new series at the moment with Acebox, who are an imprint of Penguin Random House. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got, I've got a new series that we recently signed with them, and I've got a book called Priest of Bones, which is coming out in October 2018. A little bit of a departure. It's more swords and horses kind of fantasy, but again, it's a mashup. It's a crime thriller set in a sort of analogue of Tudor Scotland come Northern England oh nice and uh, yeah it's gangsters with swords <laughs> excellent uh, yeah we pitched it to the editor as Peaky Blinders with swords meets the Godfather and uh, that was sold so so well, that's the next thing there's two books of that sold so I'm working on those at the moment but there will definitely be more drag well you've definitely sold me on that pitch <laughs> <laughs> So what's on your re so that <clears throat> so that's your reading output. So what what's on your regular reading pile at the moment? Is there any, is there any current things that you think you know tickle your fancy? Um, yeah, the most recent thing I read actually was an advanced copy of a book called Blackwing uh, by a guy called Ed McDonald that's out in the UK in July from Galantz. Mm. It is fantastic, absolutely can't recommend that one enough. It's a again, it's swords and horses fantasy, but it's set in a magical post-apocalyptic world where he has created some of the nastiest monsters <laughs> I've read for a long, long time. I'd hate to spoil them because uh, it's one of those things you kind of have to read it in the context of the setting. But these things really are the stuff of nightmares. So that, that's phenomenal. Um, so what, and yeah. what's that called? Blackwing. Blackwing. Yeah. That's Mace in the US and Galantz in the UK. So I'm just, I'm scribbling a lot of these down just for reference. Sure. Um, the 
last thing I read before that was another advanced copy. One of the great things about being a published author, you get sent books before they're out. Which is <laughs> uh, a book called God Blind by a lady called Anna Stevens, which is out in two weeks' time from Harper Voyager. And that is, that's one of the grimmest, darkest grimdarks I think I've ever read. There is a torture slash execution scene in there. That I guarantee, mate, you will have your legs crossed for the rest of the day. Of the <laughs> Do you know what? It sounds like a perfect summer read. Absolutely, always cheerful, cheerful stuff. Something they're both, for the... they're both, both absolutely excellent. They really are. I'll keep an eye out for those. The first one sounds fascinating. Yeah. Oh no, I think I think you'll like Blackwing. That's very very good. So going back to sort of your, uh, you know, your what you wrote between let's say 15 and now um you, the the fancy horror and that sort of thing is there anything back there you know sat in a drawer or a, you know in a dusty cupboard somewhere you think you'd go back and revisit oh no that's a different question um <laughs> there, there is there is a completed trilogy of other urban fantasy books sitting in a dusty corner of my hard drive um whether i'd revise it i don't it's not impossible Mm. But to be honest, to turn that into something saleable now is probably more work than writing something from scratch. Yeah. Because I mean, if, if you think about an apprentice, uh, you, chaps learning carpentry for argument's sake, the stuff you make as an apprentice, you're going to throw away, aren't you? It's true. It's, you're learning. It's it's there. There is a saying that I don't completely agree with. It's one that's trotted out quite frequently: is that you have to write a million words before you sell one. Now, I wouldn't say it was that high a number, but it is quite a large number. Mm. I mean, there, there are very few authors, well, they do exist, but there are very few authors who published the first book they've written. Yeah. I mean, you can slap it on Amazon, but, you know. Um, in terms of selling it to a trade publisher, it's very, very unusual for a debut to sell. Most authors have got several unpublished books in their bottom drawer. No, I'm never really likely to see the light of day. Well, like you say, it's that thing of, uh, like you say, it's uh, paying your dues, isn't it? Uh, uh, it is. Learning yeah. your craft. That's exactly what it is. I mean, yeah, you, you can go to creative writing classes, you can do a MFA in creative writing, whatever, but you've still got to do the writing. You can't yes. learn to write just from being told how to write. You have to actually sit and write. And the output isn't necessarily going to be great, to be perfectly honest. That first joiner's cupboard isn't necessarily going to be very very well made or very square, but you've learned stuff from building it, and it's exactly the same thing. So I suppose what you're saying there, though, as well, is that you've got to have a level of honesty with yourself as well. I think I think you really have. I mean, it's one of those... It's a very unusual business model in that you have to have absolute belief in yourself and your product but you also have to have absolute honesty with yourself, as you say, and know when it isn't good enough. Yeah. It's it's not always easy to judge when your own work is good enough, but you should be able to tell when it isn't. Mm. That's not necessarily an easy thing. And, of course, a lot of people go the other way and have don't have the belief in themselves to know when it is good. Okay, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll get onto a question about that in a minute, but you say saying that, there are very popular famous authors that you know their first sort of like third of their books are very very good very lean and very sort of like you know honest 
and then sometimes it seems to turn a corner and you think oh you needed a stronger editor on this mm. and it's I- a good editor is the most valuable thing any author can have, honestly. Mm. Well, even if you're self-publishing, for God's sake, hire an editor. Mm. Self-editing is borderline impossible, to be honest. It's, it's one of those things you can do to an extent. You can read it, you can catch typos, you can move commas around. But the sort of stuff that a structural or developmental editor does that tells you, you know, you should have introduced this character five chapters ago, it's soggy in the middle, you end it in the wrong place, or you started in the wrong place, or the pacing is off. Yeah. It's, so, it's so hard to the point of being impossible to judge that on your own work that you've been head down staring at for six months. Because you, you get to the point where you're just too close to it. Well, that's the question then, really. About the really famous authors, I, I think there does come a point where somebody is so hugely famous that the editors will let them pretty much put out whatever they send in. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, obviously, I'm not in that sort of position, but I, I agree. I mean, there are authors who have been going for 20, 30 years, and you think, uh, it's not as good as your old stuff. Yeah. Which is always rather sad, but... Uh, which, when you see the when, when I see the book width, I'll be honest, but when you see the book, like, you know, the depth of that book, you get thicker and thicker, mm-hmm. and you start to think, you've just you've just had a whole heap of ideas, and you're not willing to give any of them up. Maybe that's what it is. I, I don't really know. But, but, in that, but that's the question for me. Have, the, have you had to sacrifice any darlings? Has there been any little any pieces you've got and you no, thought that was amazing well, but you've had to roll back? No, because I'm the exact opposite. I never write enough. Okay. I, I have never written a book that didn't get longer while it was being edited. Right. So most writers will get told off by their editors because it's too fat and get sent away to cut 30,000 words out of it. Yeah. Um, damnation, I think, my editor, Phil, Angry Robot, made me add probably the best part of 10,000 words, I think, before that came out. Uh, I, I've always underwritten, I write very, very sparsely. And when I'm doing my own revisions, I'm putting stuff in rather than taking it out. And, um, it's been the same with Ace, with, with Breast of Bones. I've just turned around the structural edits on that. And again, I'm adding stuff, not taking it out. But that's, that's me. It's part of my process. It's not necessarily anybody else's. Well, that's, that's actually another question. So, what is your? So, you sit down in front of your keyboard. What is? What's your process? What? How does? Uh, how does Peter McLean put sort of uh, words to page? Oh dear me! Um, that's that's a very, an interesting question and a varied one. And this this is where I'm probably going to contradict every writing rule in the How to Write Books book. Um, I write when I want to. I'm not one of these thou shalt write x number of words a day people. Um, I'll go days without writing at all, but I'm still, I'll am still i still be thinking about it. And if I have an idea, I'll make some notes or whatever, but I won't necessarily sit and hack words into the keyboard. Um, when I do, I'll do great binges of, I think my last writing binge, it was the best part of 7,000 words in an evening. And wow. then I will revise what I wrote yesterday, the next day. So another of the great rules is don't edit as you go along. I completely disagree with that and do the exact opposite. Um, the, I mean, the upshot of that for me is that by the time I finish the first draft, it's fairly readable and everything's in the right order. And I haven't got characters appearing and disappearing and people I've forgotten were dead and all this sort of thing that you hear other people having to fix in revisions. Yes. But obviously it probably does make writing the first draft slower, but it's, it's what works for me. Um, 
I've always said the only right way to write a book is the way that works for you. And I think it's part of that apprenticeship, part of paying your dues, is to figure out the way that works for you. Because you, I mean, Stephen King wrote a fantastic book called On Writing, mm. which is very, very, very good, and it outlines Stephen King's method of writing for Stephen King. And it obviously it works for him. He's phenomenally successful and a fantastic writer. But it wouldn't work for me if I tried to write the way he writes. I'd end up with an incoherent mess because he doesn't believe in outlining. He doesn't believe in planning, and I have to write from an outline. So it's, it's a difficult question to answer about the right way to do it. But I mean, in terms of what I'll do, if I'm if I'm starting something brand new, I'll come up with a character. Always start with a character, then I'll stick that person in a setting, and then I'll give them a problem. And by that time, I've figured the character out well enough to get an idea of how they'd go about solving that first problem. And I'll start writing from there. At which point, I will establish how the book is going to end and how I want that character's resolution to look. Mm -hmm. Then it's a matter of figuring out how you get from point A to point B. And I'll, I'll do that in a sort of bulleted outline. Goes from one point to the, to the other. Flesh that out as I go and... As I'm writing it and new things occur, I mean, the outline will, will flex and evolve in progress. But once I've got the start, I don't think I've ever changed one. And the ending is where we're going. Once I've decided how it ends, that's where we're going. And, yeah, the journey will evolve as you write and get to know the characters better and have new ideas. But you'll still end up at the planned point. And once I've, you know, I'll just sit and write it from that point, right? No, it's good. I mean, that's it. I mean, the... the... I find it really interesting because it does work for, differently for different people because it's about how your brain works, how your mind works and that sort of thing. It's Absolutely. Fa- I, and it is fascinating to find out, you know, how different artists basically sculpt something. You know, in your case, you produce a story and, and you know, and characters in a world. Um, it's it's all out of your head. And it's, I always find it interesting to find out how people do, how it gets from being in your brain to being on the page. Um it's funny you say about sort of Stephen King's on writing because I've got I've I've had friends in the past that have read that and have tried to be writers and they do that thing of well no Stephen King said to do this and Stephen King said to that and you sort of like well even I'm like well I I don't think I work that way in my own head so no, no I mean that that book's a memoir it's not a textbook it's yeah. a memoir of Stephen King writes which and it is a fascinating book. It's well worth reading for any aspiring writer. But don't take it as how you should write. Yeah, do your maybe own thing. Yeah, maybe it won't. Try it, but there is never a one true way to do anything. No. So really, I mean, we've talked about. I'm I'm just going to go off 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 piste a little bit then, really. So we've we've talked about literature a lot, a lot of like. But what other things in in the the sort of horror genre, horror fantasy genre, do you sort of uh, do you enjoy? I uh, I tend to like the old classic films. I mean, it, in terms of sort of horror mashed with other things, I mm. think well, one of my big favourites is Alien. Yes. And original, Alien and Aliens, which is slightly different. I mean, Alien itself is just a haunted house film. It just happens to be on a spaceship and it happens to be a Nashy Geiger alien and not a ghost, but it's still a haunted house movie at its heart. Um, that's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I like things, I mean, you can tell from my own writing, I like things that are more than one genre or two yes. things mashed together. I mean, he looked completely the other end of the spectrum, but I think it came out at about the same time. Um, if you remember Lost Boys. Yes. With uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's some of it. it the vampire stuff is quite vampire in an 80s sort of way, but it's a comedy. It's a kid's comedy. Yeah, it is. A real coming-of-age kind of story. So... Absolutely. And um, we are Near Dark, which is one of my favourite films. Always vampires again, but they're a very different, seedy, grubby kind of vampire in in a southern gothic, almost a sort of spaghetti western kind of setting. And Yes. I love that sort of thing where it's, it's one thing crossed with another. You know, come... Dog Soldiers is... Oh, I is love Dog Soldiers. Absolutely. And then you throw werewolves at it, because why the hell not? Yeah. Know? Yeah. I like that sort of thing more than just retellings of Dracula or The Mummy or whatever. You think, well, yeah, okay, we know how this ends. <laughs> well, again, I think it sort of tickles a, it, it tickles something in us, of, you know, that comes almost from childhood. It's almost like, well, so-and-so versus so-and-so, who would win? Um Mm. And you just match those things up. I do. I do like those sort of mashups. And uh... I did endure Freddy versus Jason <laughs> to answer that question. And I was out of my life. I won't get back. But yeah. <laughs> I, I think actually, that's that's an interesting thing. I don't know if you'd agree, but something I was talking to somebody about this a few months ago. The franchise monster movies, like you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, and that mm. kind of thing. The first ones, it's you know the villain killing the hero's mates. And there comes a point around movie three or four where you're rooting for Freddy and Jason, aren't you? Because it's their franchise and they're the iconic thing. And by about movie seven, it's become a pastiche of itself. Oh, well. The Freddy show. And it's like, it interests me at what point you go from being scared of Freddy to rooting for Freddy to laughing at Freddy. Do, do you know what? Right? I'm so it's so free to say this because I've had this conversation several times with, with, with friends of mine, and uh, we uh, not too long ago, um, I actually did a show focusing on um, Nightmare on Elm Street three, um, Dream Warriors. And yes, I, I, I think that was probably the point in that one, wasn't it? There is. It's that point. Is there's a, there's a scene in that where it's the first time he quips mm-hmm. um, when he says, "Welcome to prime time, bitch," <laughs> and he just takes a, a turn from being the villain to being almost like, like you said, the franchise hero. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. It's like- the Chucky movies, isn't it? I mean, you can buy Chucky dolls. He's like a mascot kind of thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's bizarre. I think it's because, really, I think from a, from a production point of view and from a, a a movie sort of studio point of view, the only consistent thing really is the villain. It is well, yeah, because everybody else is in body bags. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah, the one you can rely on coming back next time is the monster. Yeah, well, so I suppose it, they, they sort of it's by default, really. Yeah, but it didn't work with Halloween, did it? No, that's one well, of the most. Friend, uh, I don't know what your view is, but I thought that got bad. Yes. Whereas, but Freddie and Jason just get funnier and funnier. Yeah. But my, the Mike Myers series got so bad. I go. I think I watched about half of H two O, and I was just like, no. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm very much the same. I think the. Yeah. It's a great thing, like this. You know, the Carpenter original is amazing, and two, I like, and then three with the masks is a departure, and then. <laughs> And then it just goes off the rails. They bring Michael back, and it goes, yeah, it's got voodoo uh, priest druids in it, and and all weird stuff. Yeah, it goes bad, bad, bad series. Certainly does. <laughs> um, we're talking about mashups. I mean, you, you know, you say about um, horror comedies. I mean, these things do, like you say, become a pastiche, and will eventually take the Mickey out of themselves. 
Yeah. I always think that the the best one for that though is is Jason X when they actually send Jason Voorhees into the future in space. Was oh, that the spaceship one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yes, that is. Well, I I hope it was meant to be funny. I was never entirely sure. To yeah. Be <laughs> Excuse me. Assuming assuming it was meant to be funny, it's a work of genius. I hope so because that's what I always take it as. Like. Yeah. But yeah. That's that's someone going very meta and going. Well, we'll take him to space. Absolutely, everything's better in space, isn't it? Yeah. That's a remote. Yeah. Um, there are certain things that don't seem to. I've, I've never seen a mashup. Or I've never seen a good mashup though, uh, and I wonder why. Is because you say you, you know you've seen um, uh, you know there was there's uh, Jason Voorhees in space. There's a Leprechaun in space film. There's all these other things. We don't see many. There's very little horror based around sort of like Victorian or like the Wild West. And I've always wondered why, really. It's not a lot, is it? There, there is a, a fairly small fantasy subgenre called Weird West, mm. um, where people tend to write... It's, it's the same sort of thing you get in urban fantasy, but put in a Western setting. So it's not horror-horror as such, but you maybe get Wild West vampires or Wild West wizards kind of thing. But there's yeah. not a bit about that I'm aware of. I'm sure I'm sure we'll get hundreds of recommendations in the comments on this podcast of things okay. we should have happened, but that's all good. Cause it's I the same if they're out there. Yeah, I'm sure they do exist, but no, I can't. Actually, I tell a lie. There's one I read not very long ago um, by a chap called Eric Scott Fischel, and it's called Dr. Potter's Medicine Show. And that's really, really cool. It's about a sort of travelling, well, it's a medicine show, so a sort of travelling carnival come yeah. con then. In, I think it's set in about 1880, 19, not that long after the end of the Civil War. And again, I don't want to give too many spoilers away because you really want to read that. But it involves the freak show element of the medicine show. Mm. But there's a lot more to it than that. And it's about where the freaks are coming from. That's got a lot of horror influences in it, a lot of um, historical alchemy woven into it as well. That's well worth a read. So what's that called again? Dr. Potter's Medicine Show. Dr. Potter's Medicine Show. See, this is what it's all about, finding out new things, finding new things. Absolutely, mate, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, before we sort of start to wrap up then, because we've been on for almost 40 minutes, um, do you want to promote... You know, promote the books where people can find you, where they can find the books, where they can find uh, things for the yeah, future. I mean, sure. So, I'm trade published. I'm in bookstores. Um, it's a bit hit and miss whether you'll find them in Waterstones or not, depending on the size of the branch. But they do stock them, obviously, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble in the states, Chapters Indigo in Canada, um, whatever the chain store is in Australia. I can't remember. <laughs> But yeah, so that they're stocked worldwide. Um, in all good ser- bookstores. Absolutely, this and on Amazon, of course, if you must. Um, the series is called the Burned Man series. The first book is Drake. The second, Dominion. The third, Damnation. And the Gangsters with Swords book that's coming out October 2018 will be Priest of Bones. Um, you can find it all on my website at talonwraith.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at PeteMC666. And we'll make sure that all those details are in the show notes so people can find, you and find those things. Um, and I'll say I'm, I'm really enjoying Dominion. 
it's it's Good. excellent. Thoroughly really enjoying good. it. I will really be getting good. the other books. Um, good man. And uh, thank you very very much for taking the time. No, you're very welcome. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank and you for having me. That's okay. And like I say, so we we have a copy of Drake, the first book in the series, the Burn Man series, uh, signed copy to give away. So uh, I will come up with a question, which will probably be after this in the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's a signed edition of the first book in the series. So it's very exciting. So yeah, so thank you, Peter. It's been fantastic. Right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Cheers. Cheers Thank you. Cheers, mate. Bye. Okay. So, there we have it. The interview with Pete McLean. I really enjoyed talking to him, actually. It was really good fun. Some really interesting points about uh, everything. How he got into writing, his writing style, Drake, um, slasher films, historical horror... Uh, all good. So look out for his work. It's really, really good. He can be found on Twitter, as he said. Uh, um, and uh, just Google him. Google the books. Try the books. Find them on Amazon. If you've got a Kindle, find them on Kindle. I'm sure they're available. So, the big thing. The giveaway. So, Pete has given me a copy of Drake, the first book in the Drake series, a signed copy of Drake, to give away to one lucky listener. Um so what a question. Well, I thought about different things, but there was something that sort of struck me when we recorded the first of this, and it was that idea of horror in the urban setting or the suburban setting, and you know, I sort of circled uh, Buffy. So thinking about it, really, I thought, well, we did uh, with Dave Moody last time. We did a Lovecraftian question. It was all about uh, Mr. Lovecraft. This time, then, let's do Buffy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What year... Okay, so in what year did the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer start? Okay, so that's in what year did the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer start? Okay, so if you want to contact me about that, give me the answer. Uh, Or anything to do with horror or any of the pop culture things. We've got some great things coming up. Um... In aut- in the August summer holidays, it's the summer holidays, and it's going to be fantastic. We're doing something a bit special, one a week. Um, I've got some great ones lined up. Just recorded one the other day uh, with a guy called Ori Enev, uh, the big boss at Dragon Fruit, the uh, the dating app by Geeks for Geeks, and it's cracking. It's a really good chat. I mean, we we got into some proper stuff. We look at, and this can be the next show out. We look at and discuss. When did the 20th century end? Both, you know, obviously it ended on midnight, 1999, but when did it end pop culture-wise? You know, so it's a really good conversation. It really goes around the houses. It's fantastic, and uh, it gets quite deep, quite political. I'm sure you will enjoy it. So get in contact with me on Twitter. If you've got any questions or comments or feedback or even the answer to the question, at 20th Century Geek on Twitter or 20th Century Geek at gmail.com. Uh, or even on the Facebook, uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Tumblr, uh, all those kinds of things. And uh, don't forget, Britpod Scene, also remember to Google that, try out some of the other podcasts on there. Might try if we can get some of the guests on from that. Okay, well, it's been a cracking one. And uh, next time we're going to be getting into the summer holidays. All the good funds. Okay, see you guys later. Thanks for listening.